Mindfulness mode. Don't take failure personal. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show today. I'm here with a guest who created a business in the area of photography that she ended up selling to Bill Gates in a multi-million dollar deal. So that must have been so exciting for her, but she's gone on to be known as the Growth Architect and she's founder of The Woman's Code and she provides visionaries and leaders with strategies that grow your authority so that they can scale their impact. I'm here today with Bia Tishalit. Bia, are you in mindfulness mode today? Yes, because I listened to one of your podcasts before I got on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure glad that helped. Well, it certainly did. You know, and you're talking about, you know, just sometimes just focus on the breathing and don't judge your thoughts. And I'm like, ah, good reminder. All right. I'm just going to, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be like my nickname, (laughs) B. Right. Yeah. And your nickname, Bee of the Beehive. And that's what you talk about on your podcast, I know. Isn't that true? Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. Because it's all about building a community and bringing people together that have a common uh, desire and often common problems. Yeah, for sure. Well, what does mindfulness mean to you in your life, Bee? So mindfulness is a... um very specific idea about recognizing that I want to be more in this moment. So whatever whatever happens is to not, to keep the escapism of our brain of going somewhere else or going in the future or going in the past or looking for things that have happened and say, what is true in this very moment? Can I really be present? And I'm going to give you an example that was so that was so powerful for me. You know, my daughter just gave birth to my first grandchild and I was in the privileged moment of being there in the room. And it was a hard labor. I mean, it went all day. And then, you know, suddenly there's this moment where the energy started to, to, to shift in the room. And I've been in a room where then it turned out to be a cesarean section and you know, when the, when the baby got into distress. And so I'm standing there and then first it's just a midwife, then it's a mis- midwife and a doctor, then it's a midwife and a nurse and a doctor. Then it's a doctor and a doctor and a midwife and a midwife and a nurse. And then they call the neonatal unit for respiratory because the baby had, you know, had pooped. And, uh, and, and suddenly like there's this energy in this room and I'm thinking to myself, what do I do to not freak out? Because if I freak out right now, I'm going to tip the energy in the wrong direction. So I centered myself, I I removed myself and stood more in a corner. And I visualized how I was rooted in the earth, how I was drawing the energy from above, how I was calling on my dad and my grandmother and everybody that's in my life who's, who's passed on lives in another realm, and literally pulled with my hands the energy down and pushed it toward my daughter and held the energy in the room just to stabilize it and really visualized how do I keep this energy stable because she cannot know that the baby's in distress and how do I how do I get out of the way to have the doctors do their their job of what they've trained and I visualized this baby with this energy just being pushed out and the baby was out in the next 10 minutes so so I I think that sometimes we believe it's a little hokey 
this mindfulness stuff and said, does this really work? But in that moment, and you talk about this in your podcast all the time is the trust. In that moment, I just trusted that that was what I was experiencing and that I had the power to draw down the energy. And one of the doctors came home, she says, are you okay? And I said, it's very difficult for me to see my daughter in so much distress. So I'm just going to stabilize the energy in the room. And she said, that's exactly what you should be doing. So she knew what I was doing. So it was palpable for someone else. And so mindfulness, mindfulness for me is to stay in this moment and to say, what do I have control over? What do I have power over? What can I do right now to make this moment the best moment with the best outcome? And do you remember times in the past when you did freak out, you did lose your cool because of your higher energy? Oh, what do you mean the past? That like <laughs> happens like happened like last night. Uh, I think this is just something that you, you know, and on a, on a conscious awareness level, Bruce, we just have to know who we are and what our tendencies are to to do this. I'm by nature a runner and that's my my trauma and that's my childhood story and that's my lack of feeling safe and I've done all the work on this. So when you're, you know, in for example, in my relationship right now, I, you know, my natural tendency is to run because if it's not safe, then the only way I can go is I have to go somewhere where I can hide until the danger is over. That's my that's my pattern. And so it's not that even you have mindfulness or that you are recognizing that this is happening, that it's not happening. It's still happening. But with the mindfulness, I catch myself and then I have to say to my partner, I'm sorry, I know you you didn't cause this, but this behavior triggered this. And now who do I want to be in this situation? Do I want to burn everything to the ground because I have a moment of a a, a trigger moment? Or what is my mindfulness practice now to step back? So I still lose my cool all the time. But the time that it takes me to get back to center is definitely shortening. Well, that's good. Tell me how you came up with the name Growth Architect. You're now known as the Growth Architect. Tell us about that. So I looked at when people are wanting to build something, we talk about building my business, building my dream, building my, you know, whatever that might be. And I realized that it was very difficult for a lot of people to stay in this mode of, I have to dig the ditch. I have to pour the foundation. I have to put the cornerstones in. I have to build the walls. I have to put the windows in. I have to decide where the kitchen goes. I have to look at all these different things. And people just go, not nah, building a house. This looks good. Any house will do. Nobody ever does that. But with business, a lot of people just act really reactively. And so I said, well, I needed to have something that people could visualize when it comes to building a business. And so I came up with growth architecture and my method is the five-star success blueprint so that I can take people really through the step-by-step-by-step. First, we find a location, the business model. We identify the goal. 
my house needs to be big enough for me. My house needs to be big enough for me, my family, my kids, my grandkids. I want a compound. What are we even building? And then once we have identified that, what is our blueprint to build this, the strategy? And then how do we, how do we, you know, map all of this out? How do we design this? And then the systems, what do you need to put in the house? What are the appliances going to look like? You know, where are you going to put your money? And then finally, it is the authority piece to say, well, now who do we want to celebrate this with? And how do we need to decorate it so it fits our style? And when I talk about growth architecture like that, everybody gets it. But if I talk about business concepts, not everybody, not everybody, um, not everybody likes it like I do. Right. Did it, how long did it take you to come up with this, this five-step plan? I am actually shocked that people don't know how to do that. And that's how I figured out this was my superpower because mm. I, I I looked at other people and said, but that's so easy. That's like three steps right there. You talked about three pillars. That's five columns. That's a, that's, that's a clearly a, a formula. And then they look at me like, how do you do that? Like, how do you not know how to do that? So for me, that's, that's my skill. I, I talk to someone and it just, it just plops out. And one of your skills is also writing because you wrote the book, Happy Woman, Happy World. Tell us about putting this book together and what motivated you. The book, Happy Woman, Happy World, How to Get the Foolproof Fix to Get from Overwhelmed to Awesome, I wrote because I realized that as a woman, it is exponentially more difficult, especially as a working mother, to achieve your dream, to follow your path, to live a fulfilled life, to be a good parent, to be a great boss or business owner, and not go crazy. So... I found that women have a tendency to take on too much. I call this in my book, The Superhuman Paradox, where we take the best attributes of everybody we know, and then we think we have to be the one person that has all of the 10 best attributes. We cook like Sarah. We we bake like Susan. Our body looks like Marla. Our uh, sex life is, you know, like another one of our friends. And so we think that we have to incorporate all of these things in one person, but we like other people because they have this one outstanding skill, their super skill. And so I wanted to write this book to really help women to understand that we need to have a code, the women's code first amongst other women and have this generosity and this connection with each other to understand that we are not in competition, but to understand that we are in collaboration with each other. And everybody always says it, but what does that really mean? And I wanted women to to have literally this this book as a code breaking book and say, this is how we do it. And once women have this code established amongst each other, then we can go out and fight for the bigger things. And we're not fighting for the bigger things because the bigger things are being fought by other people on our behalf and not always in our best interest. Why? Because women themselves cannot be cannot be together at the hip because we we are by the tradition and by our DNA and our history and the belief system that we have trained to look at each other as competition. So if we take another woman out, a lot of women are actually happy about that. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. So do you work mostly with women now? Do you coach women or do you coach both men and women? 
I really do both. The women's code is it's been something that was really important to me from a leadership perspective, but in the business coaching and the business consulting side of thing, things, I really work with pretty equally men and women. I typically work with visionaries, thought leaders, people that have big ideas that may not necessarily conform to the traditional standard one, two, three, four, five, but people that have ideas and they cannot land planes. I help people land planes all day long. Right. Could you tell us a story about someone you've worked with that you've really helped them transform to a better place? Yes. Yeah, so I have a client that is a female, a black data scientist. I mean, so smart. When you talk to her, your eyes glaze over, your ears fall out because she is an authority in her subject. But because she is, she uses language that's not really layman's terms because it is so, you know, so specific D data science, AI. So she wanted to develop a framework system for ethical AI and show to her clients, which were luxury search and luxury brands, where she wanted to implement this AI framework into the search engine. So when you go to a website and you do a search, then it automatically suggests you other things based upon your behavior. And sometimes you are amazed on how good it is. And sometimes you go, that's really awkward that it would suggest that. So she wanted to develop this ethical framework. And when she came to me, there was definitely a challenge in understanding the lingo Mm -hmm. But because I have I have my framework to build frameworks, you know, the signature growth system within that framework, she figured out very quickly what the transformation journey was, what the pieces of the transformation journey were. And we designed language that actually explained to a buyer who was not a data scientist what that actually meant. And then when she did that, she closed a $50,000 job seven days later. Wow. Wow. That must have been so rewarding for you to have worked with her that way. Yeah, it is. It's always rewarding when people you work with that then walk out and make make a big change. And I have a, a woman that came to me who is a communication specialist and we came up with one term for her, for her um, method. And as we did this, she decided that she was going to work with people in technology that oftentimes were so smart, but didn't necessarily have the social communication skills, but they were so smart that they had been promoted and now needed to lead teams. And they didn't even know how to, how to communicate properly. And when she did that, she immediately signed a $20,000 client within, you know, within two weeks after we, uh, we started working together. And that part to me is very powerful. If you, give people the tools to understand how to articulate what they do in a way that other people, A, can understand it, and B, that it sounds like it's different from everybody else out there. Cool. Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you about your podcast and what you've learned by being a podcaster and how that experience has been for you. Your podcast called The Business Growth Architect. Yes. So The Business Growth Architect show is a podcast that's been designed to help people with strategy and workflow system process and things like that. What I've learned is really interesting. 
that when I do what we call softer topics, Bruce, about mindfulness and about fulfillment, these shows seem to get more traction than the shows on strategy, even though it's a, it's a strategy podcast. So I, I, I'm still kind of like playing with that a little bit because I'm, I'm baffled by that because how can I do the business growth architect show and then have people go and say, yeah, but we like, we like the topics where we talk about how can I be more fulfilled? How can I find purpose? And I thought it was all about the harder stuff, but I realized that People know they need to learn something because they're not good at it, but that's not necessarily what they want. Right. So between the want and the need, we are ever so carefully working in an infinity loop, I think. And I'm sure this is the same thing for your podcast yeah. is that yeah, it is. people go, I do want to be more mindful and I do want to meditate. Gosh, I can't even sit still for five minutes. How am I going to even meditate, right? Yeah. And how do you meditate? Tell us about meditation in your life, Bia. I had a moment where I talked to my partner, Gary. And Gary, you know, Gary's gotten pretty good at meditating. And I admire him for that. Like every morning, you know, he he sits down, he does his 10, 15 minute meditation. And before he was able to do that, he had talked to a mindfulness coach and he said that he didn't meditate and then the coach took him through some some examples he says well but when you go on your bike ride what says that you that that's not a meditation for you and it really gave me a lot to think about i go hiking pretty regularly so i'm out just about every week mm-hmm. and to me that's my meditation that's where i put something on that i you know, is is about something that I want to learn that I I can then walk and hike and be in that rhythm of the steps to then shut down my brain and really take in what I want to absorb. And to me, that's my form of meditation. Now, could I sit down and meditate, meditate? I find that very difficult for me. But if I take my brain and I put it in a place where it can't run away from me for 20 minutes at a time or my mindful mindfulness practice where I listen to a segment on, on mindset pretty much every day. So today I listened to your podcast. So I can do that. But for some reason, I have a block. If I would have to sit down, take my headphones and actually sit down, close my eyes and meditate, mm-hmm. I have so much resistance in that. Maybe maybe I need to hire you to help me with that. Uh, <laughs> yes. But but there is, but I found a workaround until I get to the point where I feel I can do that in a better way. And I don't know why I cannot do that or I choose not to do that or what the stories I'm telling myself. But if your listeners are like me in that regard, find something that is a repetitive um, physical activity that gets you into a rhythm where your brain then kind of like falls in somewhat a half sleep because it's really not doing anything. And then put something on that interests you. And then that is the piece, you know, so I I was listening to Brian Tracy and I know you, 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 you co-authored a book with Brian. Yeah. I listened on his stuff about sales. 
I listen on, I listen to a lot of audiobooks on topics that I'm interested in. I listen to a ton of podcasts about mind, mindset, mindfulness, and mind, you know, all these things that I love to do when I'm hiking. And that seems to, that seems to level out my brain waves. Wow. That's, that's great. And it sounds like you really uh, are successful with the way you've done this meditation for you. It's worked out very well. I want to ask you as the business growth architect, what are your thoughts on AI? I think AI is going to be here to stay knowing human nature. The bad guys are going to put 10 times as much effort in it as the good guys. So we're going to see a lot of bad stuff in AI happening which we already are. We already see deep fake tapes of um, criminals mimicking the voice of your child, sending you emergency phone calls from your in your child's voice that your child's been kidnapped for ransom. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen before it gets better because it seems to be human nature. If you look at our history, we always have to do the bad thing first to realize how bad this really can get. And then we regulate it bad to, to making sure that it doesn't, go that bad. So I think it's our obligation to make sure that the people that are nervous about AI are using AI in a much larger number than the bad guys, because it's a child that's learning. So if the stuff that goes in is primarily from the bad guys, it's going to learn more of the bad behavior, and then you have to re-educate it. So you rather want to, you know, use AI a lot for good things, and then say please and thank you, so that you train the, the AI algorithm as it's learning to to behave in a way that is beneficial so that's my my worry but we use ai on a daily basis we use it for everything we use it yeah. for, for 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 writing we use it for meeting analysis when you know i record my my meetings then i run them through a, a prompt a couple prompts so i know what was said i put those meeting notes into my database so I can refer to what was said and what the outcome and the action items were. We run our own podcast on how we um, do the show notes and these things on it, on, on it. We do a ton, a ton on AI. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah, it's it's really changed how I do things, that's for sure. Dramatically, yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about bullying because I always ask a question about that on my show. Do you have a story or something to share with us about this topic? Yeah, so when I was a child, my mother is a very conservative, very complicated woman. Mm-hmm. And she wanted me to go to school looking like I was a grand dam, like a, um, like a, and the look was, was, I I literally looked like a 12 year old secretary. So she put me in pleated skirts, ballet flats before ballet flats were a thing and rougher blouses with, you know, what was back then the secretary equivalent of a tie, the bow and problem was that I had dental issues. So I have a front tooth that had, you know, three naturally grown teeth in one spot. So I had to have multiple surgeries right here and a gap in my front tooth. So I still had a a lisp and a front tooth missing until I was like 12 years old. And I remember standing in the entry 
hall of the Catholic school I went to, and everybody's wearing jeans and and they were all cool. And here was me. And I looked like a secretary. Right. In the school. And I remember people like pointing their finger at me and just going like, Oh my God, she looks so ridiculous. You know, they were they were all laughing at me. Yeah. So so that's my that's my experience with that. And you know, then I, I had to fight a lot of fights with my mother that I just wasn't going to be wearing these kinds of clothes anymore because everybody looked at me like I was a freak. Right, right. So then as you got a little bit older, you started to find your own way and wear what you chose. Is that right? Yes. Well, we were not allowed to have jeans because, uh, you know, that was not appropriate for what my mother considered our social status. And so there were a lot of battles around around this. I finally was able to get one pair of jeans. And I remember I wore those pair of jeans every single day just so I would not have to wear all this other stuff anymore. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a a real challenge. Well, as we move on in the show, I want to ask you five quick answer questions via. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Uh, David Nagel, my mindset trainer. I've done a lot of work with him. I listen to his podcast and his stuff all the time. Right. Okay. My second question is about uh, emotions. Tell us about how you've been able to manage your emotions differently as a result of mindfulness. I make a conscious effort to know that not everything I think is the truth, that my my subconscious volunteers stuff that's based on a different pattern than necessarily the truth. So I constantly have to question, is this, what's the truth in this? Right. Okay. My next question is about breathing. Do you have any comments or thoughts on breathing and how you uh, relate it to mindfulness? I wish I was better at it. That's like the one thing I find myself holding my breath all the time. Mm. That would be probably my number one thing where I feel I need to get a lot better at it. So I, I, I think I'm currently maybe getting a D on that. Uh, okay. Well, your book, Happy Woman, Happy World, is a book that I highly recommend. Bia, do you have any other books that you would recommend that are related to mindfulness? Well, I definitely love the book, The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And it is mm-hmm. not necessarily a book on, on mindset, but it is it is a book on mindset because it says small actions lead to big rewards. And sometimes people get very overwhelmed because they think they have to do the whole thing all at once. So it's a great reminder to say little things one by one by one amount to something. So I I definitely recommend that. Um, Obviously, I recommend everybody who is listening to this episode to go to your podcast, wherever they pick it up, give you a five-star review and write a comment about what they're taking away from this episode and sharing it with one other person so that we can get you in front of more people to help more people with their mindfulness and their uh, mindset in daily life. And, um, but most of the stuff that I listen to is really uh, audio and podcasts. Right. Are there any apps that you use or recommend? Um, I don't necessarily use apps per se because then that would be having to go back to that. No, the no. I let me let me change that. The one thing I do is uh, Kelly Hallwell, uh, Hollywell, uh, the the brainwave. Or she does something called Brain Sync. 
Okay. And it's about theta waves. Okay. So she has segments that I can play in the background without the actual meditation because uh -huh. it's it's subliminal on the theta waves that I can do. Um, so so her I like a lot. And I when I get into a migraine pattern, that somehow seems to help uh, take the tension out of my brain. Oh, does it? Well, I'll have to check that out. I have not not uh, checked out that particular app. So Bia, before we wrap up the episode, I just want to ask you if you have any final words of advice for our Mindful Tribe listeners. Yeah, I think the most important thing that I would really want to take everybody home is don't take failure personal. The adversity that a lot of people are experiencing, especially right now, is you getting stretch marks as you become more pregnant with the idea. And eventually you'll give birth, but this part is a tough part. So when people go into these moments where nothing seems to work or it seems to be very difficult, they get frustrated and they want to go back to safety. The reason you're going through something like this is because you're stretching and you have to stay the course until you see the miracle on the other side. And that's the difference between success and failure is your ability to withstand the storm because I can guarantee you after this storm, there will be calm seas. But if you turn around, you don't know if it's closer to shore that way or closer to calm if you just would continue. So I recommend just continue. Thank you for that. And I didn't mention your website, beatishalit.com. It's B-E-A-T-E-C-H-E-L-E-T-T-E, beatishalit.com. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Bea. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the show today. And just take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.